One of the stores I loved visiting in the early days of my life in Los Angeles was called the Bodhi Tree. It was in this sweet Spanish colonial cottage in West Hollywood and carried all kinds of books to support your spiritual awakening. So not surprising that it was here I first stumbled on a book by Dr. Luann Brizendine, an American scientist and neuropsychiatrist who founded the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic at University of California, San Francisco. It was called The Female Brain. And even though I did well in biology back in high school, at that time in my life, it was an unlikely title for me to pick up. But I believe that books are prescriptive. They provide deep knowledge and insight and healing. And it felt like in that moment, the book was choosing me. And so I took it home. And it was soul shifting because finally, all of those intuitive things I'd been putting together in my work with women around becoming visible had science to back them up. Dr. Brizendine was among the first to explain why women think, communicate, and feel differently than men, which is why when I discovered that she had a new book, The Upgrade, about how women's brains are reshaped for the better in the second half of life, I knew I had to speak to her. The two words that we do use in our culture are very narrow words that were me- that are medical terms. That are medical terms for a disorder, a disease, and those are the words perimenopause and menopause, and even postmenopause. Those are words that are medical words that have to do with a particular dysfunction or a lack thereof or a disease, quote unquote. That whole period of a woman's life from age 40 to 60, hello, it's not a disease. Inspired by her own experiences and those of the thousands of women at her clinic, the doctor's message is nothing short of revolutionary. Historically, women have been told by society to dread the second half of life, to focus on beauty treatments and procedures promising to reverse the signs of aging, to go it alone without support or role models. But that's about to change, whether society likes it or not. This is Dr. Luann Brizendine, and this is a lesson in how to seize your upgrade. What's your earliest memory of being creative? That's an interesting question because you don't know, you don't have a word for that, right? It's such a strange experience. From the three and four and five years old, I was already getting some feedback that I recognize now way later on was feedback that I had some special skills in, in sort of putting things together or whatever. I used to you know, play these different games or I, was, I just was able to grok you know, lots of material. I used to read this big animal book with my father and I would remember all the names that was like really into it. But so you look back at those things and you're like, oh, you, you say, okay, that's who you are. But then you look back years later and think, okay, 
I had this kind of really free associative mind that was working mm. in its particular way. We all have different brains, of course. Nobody's the same. So you don't know till later on that that, that may mean that you're quote unquote, that big word creative. <laughs> no, and language is everything. So I want to jump into it because you want to rebrand the M word, which we'll only say it once. We'll just say it once, menopause, because it's as different, you say, from obstetrics as surgery is from pediatrics. So tell me what you'd like to rebrand this word to and why it's important to. Okay. What we need to do is focus down. The two words that we do use in our culture are very narrow words that were me- that are medical terms, that are medical terms for a disorder, a disease. And those are the words perimenopause and menopause and even postmenopause. Those are words that are medical words that have to do with a particular dysfunction or a lack thereof or a disease, quote unquote. That whole period of a woman's life from age 40 to 60, hello, it's not a disease. I, I wanted to rebrand it the transition and the upgrade because I wanted to take the whole woman picture. I wanted to take all of us. That little narrow definition it captures some things that you go to the doctor and you have your list of complaints about, and it's important. So I don't mean to just completely push it under the rug, but I need to broaden it out because it's not all of who we are during those developmental stages of the woman's second half of life. So the transition, as you define it, is between two and 14 years. And you say that the stages of the transition can be like a storm. So let's talk about what those transition stages look like. Okay. So let's back up and say where we're starting. So I divide that the thing I call the transition. And as you put it, for some women, it can be two years, some years, women, it can be 14 years. So that's a pretty big span as you <laughs> might. So I talk about the, what's called the pre-transition. It's about, about roughly age 37 to 41. And I don't put any specific ages on some of these, just a range because women are very individual and we all go through at a different rate. We're given a million eggs at birth. And then by the time we get to actually to 12 or 13 years old, when we start our menstrual period, we're down already to 500,000. So it's decreasing. Then we get to the age 37 and they're getting in quite short supply between 37 and 41. That's why a lot of women have problems getting pregnant and, and the infertility goes up a lot during that stage. And remember that in contrast, the male testicles, they start making sperm right away and they make sperm up until the grave. They're always making, <laughs> they're making <laughs> sperm and testosterone. It does change in its amount, of course, but they're making it their entire lives. We women have a period that's shortened where we stop making the eggs and then our hormones, our estrogen and testosterone falls off a cliff, boom, at a certain <laughs> stage, whereas the men, it goes down gradually. And a 60-year-old woman versus a 60-year-old man, the 60-year-old man has four times more estrogen in his brain than a 60-year-old female unless she's on HRT. Just and because estrogen is so important for the regulation of our system. Your bones use estrogen all of your life to keep your bones strong, and your brain uses estrogen all of your life, males and females, mm-hmm. to keep those strong. And the reason that we think about testosterone being different, but it has a little enzyme, a little tricky enzyme called aromatase. It sounds like a coffee bean, but it's not. Aromatase is an enzyme that changes testosterone into estrogen in the bones and in the brain. So men are running around with a lot of estrogen in their brain. They just don't know. If you say that to them, they'll look at your cross-eyed, but it's it's a biological fact. 
Yeah. So we move out of the pre-transition and then where do we go? So the next stage that which I call the early transition is about age like 42 to 45. And the What's happening then, of course, is that the egg supply is dwindling even more. And the types of things that you'll notice physically for yourself is when you're maybe when you're exercising and you stop. I used to do the elliptical when I was younger, but when I still had joints that worked really well. But and I would get off at that stage and I, I wouldn't cool down as fast. I would just I would stay hot for a long time. And I realize in retrospect, that's the little temperature gauge in your brain and the hypothalamus in the female brain. And and Mm -hmm. the hypothalamus has the the, the temperature thermostat on the wall in your house. And the estrogen is what sort of sets that. And as estrogen goes down, what happens is the following. If you're with a group of people in a room and they change the temperature up by 10 degrees, Mm -hmm. everybody's hot, right? So everybody's like getting warm. But during this stage, when the change is happening, for the female brain, one degree temperature change in that room. Nobody's hot except for you and you're sweating. Right. <laughs> so that's no, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. But I'm, I'm also was interested, you were talking about the biological ramifications of this because people think, oh, you've got hot flashes. But you talk about how that actually is triggering some biological responses in our brain for cortisol production. Is that right? Yes. So remember the fight or flight reaction is where your adrenals squeeze out a whole lot of fight or flight hormones, which are like cortisol and epinephrine. And they will, they, they're the things that get you to run away from the tiger in the woods. They're the savior life of hormones. And then there's another type of the adrenals under chronic stress, under kind of chronic daily stress of like females have a, you know, Caretaking mm-hmm. stress is really stressful for women, taking care of the kids and then the older generation and taking care of business. We have, we women have way too many jobs, as we all know. <laughs> We're always squeezing our adrenals a little bit for stress for that cortisol. That extra cortisol that, that sort of starts to squeeze out can cause us also a little bit of what that, the brain fog piece mm-hmm. can be also contributing to the brain fog of this time of life of this transition stage. So then we move from the early transition into the middle transition. Women are more conscious of more symptoms. Every woman, even in her fertile years in the 20s and 30s, they've discovered about one cycle per year is an eggless cycle. But then in this mid-transition that we're talking about, age, the kind of chunk of time, 43 to 46 or 7 in that chunk of time, you're starting to have a few eggless cycles or even more per year. And one of the ways you can track to see what stage you're in is let's say you're a 28-day woman and you're like, that's what you had. (laughs) And then in this stage, you start to go down into the 27, 26, 24, 25. So your, your cycle starts to shorten. The reason it shortens is because of all of that, the changes in, in the estrogen, the changes in the eggs, the changes in the pituitary, yelling at the ovary, please play louder, make more estrogen. And the ovary says, hello, I'm about to retire. Leave me alone. We call it, in my clinic, we call it the sputtering ovary syndrome. So sputter, sputter, sputter. And it's not going to come back and speak as, as loudly. And some women start to get a little bit of the, the sleep difficulties. When the estrogen starts to go down because the follicles aren't making as much, that's when you can also get a lot of sleep difficulties during this stage. You can start to get joint the joint pain. I don't know if you had that. I had a lot of the, oh, the joints felt awful during that stage. Mm-hmm. And, and women also that have had depression and anxiety in the past, 
start to have often more anxiety and depression again. And some women who've never had it in their life start to have that too. So it it affects your mood, it affects your joints, it affects your sleep, it affects your brain. So this is just, we're talking about the transition and how to get through it. This is the middle. You spoke about when we moved to the late transition that flood-like bleeding can happen during this time, that fibroids can happen. And I wanted to say thank you for acknowledging BIPOC community, of which I am one, and mentioned that women of African descent often tend toward fibroids, which are also common during this period. And I'm wondering what that's about, if, if or if they've shown why women of African descent have more fibroids. Yeah, I had them too. So they're very common in all, in, on all women. And we don't know why there's a, where's, why the BIPOC community, we don't know why there's some the racial differences in a lot of this because we also, they're, they're, I tried to speak about them in the book where we do know something. We may not know the cause, but we do know. It may be because on average, African-American women may have more fat cells that make even more estrogen. And the estrogen is what causes the fibroids to grow. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so the fibroids, the fibroid growth during this period of the transition can get pretty big. Mine got to be, I don't know, like the size of a big orange or whatever is pushing on my bladder. And like, it's like all this stuff. And then it's really wonderful when the finally comes out. But this issue of heavy bleeding, what we call it flooding, a technical term, which is if you have an eggless cycle, then the follicle, which usually makes progesterone, there isn't a follicle when you don't ovulate. There's no follicle for that particular cycle. So you're not making progesterone in that cycle, which then doesn't clean out your uterus with a period during that cycle. But then it builds up for another cycle and then you start to have a flood. And then we get this thing called looping where another follicle is developing and then one isn't. And it's like trains backing up in a station. You just start to get buildup of the blood. And some women can't even get out of the house in the morning without having three super tampons before they get out the door. I know women have to wear adult diapers to even manage, or definitely no, don't sit on white upholstery and don't sit on, do no white clothing. It's, it's, it looks, the bed looks like a crime scene. It's, it can be pretty tough for those women who have flooding. So wow. check your anemia too, because if you start losing that much blood, you start to be anemic. So they may need to give you some iron, which I talk about in the book. So I just want to give women a heads up about that because I, the iron is what in our red cells helps us carry oxygen oxygen to the brain and to the whole body. So that's why you're probably feeling tired as well. So it, there are things we can do. So don't women out there listening, do not suffer. We, listen, we have many things to help you with that. So don't suffer if you're in that category. So far, as you do mention in the book, this all of this sounds like a bit of a downgrade, quite frankly. It doesn't sound like an upgrade. It doesn't sound terribly exciting. But what's coming is this upgrade that can last between 10, 40, or 50 years. So why is it that all of this happening is in fact an upgrade? And can you describe what the stages of this upgrade are? Of course, yes. And I think about us women though too. Childbirth is not a pretty situation either. (laughs) We women go through a lot of suffering that has to do with our fertility. Right. And we, and we go through menstrual cramps. We go through a lot of stuff to be able to have our fertility. Right. And this is the stage where that whole system is ramping down. So the cool thing about it is, is on the other end, you feel a little bit like Alice in the looking glass, you walk through the other side. And I just, I wrote the book and I called it the upgrade because I want women to know, wow, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of good stuff waiting for you on the other side of this, what seemed like hell for a while. Remember all of our life, we're going through the, the, since we became fertile, let's say at age 11, 12, 13, day one of bleeding, 
is what we call day one of the menstrual cycle. Day one of bleeding out comes the, the blood for the next four or five days, and then your little ovary starts to make it the egg more and more. The next cycle with the egg starts to be building up and making estrogen. And then by the second week, four or five days before the ovulation, you have huge amounts of estrogen. Remember, the purpose of a hormone is to cause a behavior. The purpose of a hormone is to cause a behavior. For example, the hunger hormones make you want to eat. The sex hormones make you want to have sex. Right. It's to cause a behavior. It makes you have an urge, and then it makes you do something about it, right? <laughs> Supposedly. I could use less hunger hormones myself. No, right there. Same thing. Yeah. And then, so they've done lots of studies, and they find that women with a high estrogen women get more flirtatious. We sway our hips more. We may put a little more makeup on. We may wear some clothes that look a little sexier. And we be, our voice gets higher, actually. We get a little more flirtatious. Mm-hmm. And what women are trying to do it, that is be as attractive as possible to the opposite sex. We're out there looking for the best sperm, whether we know it or not. It's subconscious. We are out there looking for the best sperm, ladies, at that well, stage. That, even if now, the, but what about for the women who consciously decide, no, I don't want kids, or for the women who are lesbian. Is there science around that? At this yeah. Moment? So there's not a lot of science around that. The I was just going to go with the, the best basic foundation of kind of what's going on under the hood in us females at that stage. If you're opposite sex attracted, it unfolds naturally in your puberty years, your pre-puberty and puberty years. If you're going to be attracted to the same sex, that's when you usually fall in love for the first time with someone same sex. If you're going to be opposite sex attracted, that's when that happens too. So it all unfolds naturally at the same time, whichever sex you're going to be attracted to. Right. So it's all running on the same machinery. Right. Um, okay. And this, I just, I guess I euphemistically say we're hunting for the best sperm for procreation of the species. I, like I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but that's really biologically it's going on at this time. And the reason that it's important for the upgrade is then, of course, then when the progesterone comes on, it, the, all those circuits that are built in your brain during the high estrogen of your cycle, which goes up to sometimes 400 to 1,000 fold right there before ovulation, you're, and it's causing you to behave in a certain way and causing your attractiveness, all kinds of behaviors happen. And then the progesterone comes and tears it all down in the next two weeks before PMS hip happens, and then we get irritable and tearful and all that stuff happens. So we have been on this roller coaster wave, ladies, since we've been maybe 10, 11, 12, 13. That's been what we've been, what's been going on. Now, what's happening to us is when that stops, We've been walking along a pathway down along the shore where the tide comes in and it washes connections away and then it comes out and it builds them back every month, washing away, building back, washing away. And then all of a sudden in the upgrade, you're walking on a path that's higher up the hill that's really stable. You're away from that tide line. You're not getting circuits and things washed away and built back every month. You can stand firmer and see further. It gives you more clarity. So you're going to find that there's a whole lot of like for the beginning of your second half of life, all of this stability and a feeling of like solidity that you can count on how you're going to feel day to day and month to month comes. And wow, that is definitely an upgrade. That is an upgrade. You talk about receptors being on every single organ, not just the brain, which was really fascinating to me. So that when the production of those hormones declines, then the impact can be really profound. But that this is also a fundamental time of transformation, physical and emotional identity. And it's like reincarnation taking place within a single lifetime. And it's as you were just talking about this kind of emotional stability. But you also talk about course corrections coming rapid fire every day. 
for a duration of around 35 years and that the waves previously had caused just enough suffering to allow us to connect with our best selves. So can you connect that for me? I'm trying to understand how that works a little bit. We women are always dealing with whatever's thrown at us. It's like those Japanese swords that they make, that they, they are tested by fire. They are hardened and strengthened by incredible heat, incredible fire. I feel like that's what happens to us women too. As we go through all of our suffering and stresses and whatever even tragedies are thrown at us in our life, we become incredibly strong from those things. And we have incredible stability and things to offer. We have a vision to reach down and to give a hand to our younger sisters and pull them up. Resilience too, you talk about being a factor that contributes to the survival of our system, but to the possibility that we're going to reach a full and maximized potential because we've been so resilient during this sort of hormonal storm and now here we are in stability. If we've survived the hormonal storms that we women go through and we go through the transition, we are tested by fire. We are tested by the struggles in our life. And we are at a stage where we actually have some ability to stand strong and, and look forward in our lives and make some choices about what directions we want to go. We have this incredible clarity at that point, and a new sense of purpose often arrives for lots of women. And we can grab that if we know how to seize it. Yeah, you talked about just practically some treatments around this time, and hormone therapy had gotten a bad rap. Paper came out that was later proven to have invalid information in it, research stopped, but that allowing women to get hormone therapy, you said within the first five years after the transition, can actually help later on with brain health and with bone health and with all kinds of things. Can you speak about that? There's two parts to your question, which is one, this big paper that came out, actually is the 20th anniversary of that paper right now. Oh, wow. And it was called the Women's Health Initiative. And I had some of my colleagues back at the National Institute for Health at the time said, Luann, this is going to put estrogen research in women back 20 years. And I didn't believe them at the time, but here we are, ladies. It's been 20 years where they've stopped all this research on female research on estrogen in females or in the transition and the upgrade. They haven't done the research because of that paper, which was now found to be erroneous. They didn't even start the estrogen for women until they were 64 in the study. And Lots of them already either had breast cancer or had the breast cancer gene or were smokers. A lot of things that, that made it invalid. But we were not built necessarily to last much past the t transition because we're you know, just in terms of how Mother Nature, we're not, we were not built to last 100 or 120 years like we are being built to last now. So right. that means that we females, the first chunk of our life is with the fertility cycle going on under the hood all the time. And then the second half is we're not having that push and pull all the time. But the issue of estrogen being on the receptors of all of your brain cells, your heart cells, your all of your muscle, every place in your body, your gut, your heart, your liver, your pancreas, your lungs, everywhere, and all areas of the brain have estrogen receptors in both men and women, by the way. Mm. So what they found is that, that having some estrogen during the that the transition and into the upgrade is very helpful for the female brain at that time to help with your memory function and with your basically with keeping some of the brain fog away. And they even are looking at how it may help somewhat with prevention of dementia. 
So stay tuned for that because there's some big studies out there going on right now. So that may become something that's really important. And that's what I was going to address because two thirds of women develop Alzheimer's. Women are at greater risk for Alzheimer's than men are as they are at risk for a lot of autoimmune disorders as well. And so I'm curious, is estrogen then going to be the key to that? So we don't know the answer whether estrogen will be the key to that or not. And so one thing to remember is that women live longer than men. And the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's is age. So that means that, of course, women, they, as we get older, there's more older women than there are men. It's actually, it's not, it's two to four, we don't live that much longer, two to four years. But so it's not like a huge amount of age that we have on right. men. But that's one reason that women have more Alzheimer's. And that also when once a woman versus a man gets Alzheimer's, the man usually dies of it within four or five years. And the women often last from five to five to eight years. The two to three may be not quite that big of a ratio, but it still is something that we we are taking very seriously. And there are lots of research protocols to look at that estrogen at the menopause. So the menopause is the one thing that happens to women that doesn't happen to men. Remember there's, their testosterone is drizzling down from the age of 30. Men's testosterone goes down a bit, but it never falls off a cliff like ours does right. at menopause and all women go through it. So right. that's why they're looking at that connection to see if there's a connection there. Mm -hmm. And if the, the loss of estrogen at that stage may have something to do with that. So they may start finding that any of you women listening out there that have a big family history of Alzheimer's and something in your family, you may want to talk with your doctor if it's worth it in, in some way to start, like probably in your late forties to start uh, getting some estrogen replacement. So the jury's still out on the, the real science that we are doing research on right now. So stay tuned. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that some physicians will recommend the pill and that the pill can cause depression and anxiety because of the increase in progesterone. You were saying between 1999 and 2010, the fastest growing rate of suicide was not white men. It was among women of all ethnicities around the age of 60. And yet the phenomenon is not being reported, nor is it being studied. Yeah, that's right. And that's a very curious fact. And we just don't, we just don't know why that is. Clearly, there's a lot of mood issues that happen for us women during the transition and can be into the upgrade. So I just encourage any woman that's having trouble with your mood or with depression and anxiety, we have lots of things to be helpful for you. So do not suffer in silence. We have things to help you. I wanted to talk about the brain, and I'm a big fan of your other book, The Female Brain, where you talk about emotion and memory, uh, the hub of it, the hippocampus, being larger in women. An elephant never forgets. You talk about the insula being larger, and that's the center that processes gut feelings, and then the anterior cingulate cortex, the worry center being larger, which I thought was really interesting. If gut feelings occur in the insula, is this kind of where our intuition is coming from too? And if the insula is, you talk about in the upgrade, comparing what we look like to what others look like, and it's influencing what we think about in relationship to others, and that it's the brain area for feeling disgust at the gap between expectation and reality. And that it gets triggered when we are not getting an answer like, hey, are you okay? If you're not okay, then it gets stressed out, my insula. So I'm just curious, is this where the self-doubt is generated 
as well. Oh, yeah. So the insula is a, is a very cool thing. If you took your thumbs, put them above your ear and stuck them into your brain by about one inch on each side, you have the two, the insulas are right in there somewhere. They did a study and they put women in the brain scanner. They looked at the pictures in the brain scanner of models, beautiful models, and the insula just lit up like mad as they compared themselves negatively, of course, to these like beautiful models. So there's a the circuitry, it's in the attractiveness thing for most women, that's, it's often in a negative association. We're looking at other people saying, oh, why couldn't I look like that? And also that saying the FOMO, the fear of missing out, okay. like that the insulin goes wild. And they've done a lot of those studies also in, in monkeys and things. And that area just goes wild. But it, it also senses the, what can I do to be more attractive or, or what can I do to be more like the rest of the group? We are such social creatures that that insula is constantly kind of fine tuning both how we behave and how we look and giving us signals about how we're okay and not okay. And it can also lead to worries about that. It's important for us women to know that little part of our brain exists. It's in there spinning around. On page 201 of the book, I talk about the hamster wheel of worry. And you get into that kind of worry wart thing where you're feeling you're not good enough and you're self-doubting and all this stuff. You, there are specific things that we, but we need to do to work on that. Everybody has this going on, no matter who you are, even the most beautiful women in the world, they have this going on all the time under the hood. We need to quiet that part down so that we can use the best part of our brain. You talk about too, like even setting goals and we're not following them or we set goals and we achieve them, we get a dopamine hit. But if we don't achieve them, we're not getting that. And then over time that's compounding. And then that's what can lead to deep depression in women. And so you're saying again, through us, this is the theme, us navigating this hormonal storm that we go through, we have the ability to reframe, I'll just use my language, to reframe what this is. And to to actually to keep going in spite of what the insula is telling us. That's right. You you use the perfect word. There's the word, and it is actually it's a whole, there's a whole science called reframing. And let me tell you, it's a very cool thing that the new study that just came out last year. So they're laying in the scanner. They're watching these two areas of the brain when you're in the hamster wheel of being a worry, and a little blue bar comes up when those two areas are like maglock together in the scanner. And then when they start doing the reframing and self-affirmations that they've learned that are personal to them, they watch the blue bar go down as the maglock of the worrywart and self-doubts releases in their brain. Ladies, this is a real thing. You've got to learn to do the reframing and find the things for you and find the people in your life that help your fire of, of creativity and self-love grow because that is what's going to break that hamster wheel of worry and let that blue bar of maglock go down so that you can have your best life. So thank you for bringing that up. That is such an important concept, the reframing one. I do it in the morning. I wiggle my toes in the morning and I smile to myself. I have this little thing I talk about in the book. Like first thing I wake when I very wake up, I wiggle my toes. Someone's playing with your toes, wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. And then you make a put, put a sm actual smile on your face because those little muscles all through your cheekbones and through your lips and your mouth, it actually signals back into your brain to tell you everything is okay and it's going to be a good day. It sounds silly. It sounds very trite, but it's biological. And this kind of goes back to that question of the body because the transition and the upgrade are happening in the brain. Even though the organs are dictating, the, the ovaries and the uterus and all of that are part of it, it's still happening in the brain. 
our muscles have memory. I think about fascia and how they have memory and fascia release, myofascial release, the energy gets trapped there. Is there any research on what the body remembers? Because women's perception of their bodies and I guess what they perceive as the decline of their bodies during this time or the shifts in their body in this time can impact what they think so profoundly. But is there any research on what your body remembers? The, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, Trauma Held in Your Body. Sometimes when things happen to us and we push them so far back in our mind that we don't consciously remember them, but different parts of our body will remember them. A lot of somatic therapists or fa myofascial release people, they can help release some of that. And even physical therapists can teach you new exercises. To, if you can ease it in the body, then it will feed back to the mind and also ease it in the mind. So it, going back and forth between the body and the mind to uh, basically rewire you into being your best self, into being a real upgrade. You talk about how the younger female brain diverts the impulse to stand up for herself and the values she holds dear biologically, trying to impose silence. But during the upgrade, the force of the impulse to speak out will feel like driving a Maserati for the first time. Thank you for bringing that up because it's a really critical part. Remember, we were talking about that that the whole thing about becoming more flirtatious, swaying your hips more, and and you know trying to be more attractive to procreate the species. All that stuff that the hormones are driving you to do. Now, remember, that means also that you want to be a people pleaser. You don't want it that if you're doing that, you're trying to attract a mate. If you think if you even watch the birds or the seals, you let them do their mating dance or thing during the year. It's very choreographed and it's hardwired in their genetics and in their behavior. That mm -hmm. is happening to us subconsciously, women. Hello, women. It's happening to us and we don't even know it. You basically, you don't cause conflict. You're not going to do anything to interrupt that cycle at that age. But now, as you go through the transition and the upgrade, you're not being driven by those hormones that are pushing that type of behavior. You learn to say what you mean, but not say it mean. So if you're younger and speaking out then, and you're feeling quote unquote crazy about it, it's because you're going against the biological drive. Biology is destiny unless you know what it's doing to you. So if you understand that this is happening under the hood for you, then you can say to yourself, okay, I make a choice. I'm not going to just keep my mouth shut, be a people pleaser, and I am going to stand for my values and speak up, even though I know it has a cost. It's going to have a cost to me in some kinds of ways. The reality is, so what? It costs you something. It costs you something, but you also gain something on the other side. So I encourage younger women to, yes, stand firm, speak up, speak your mind. And the cost for us is not usually as big as we fantasize that it might be. So just do it. <laughs> is anybody doing research on how long it takes to reprogram these biological cognitive biases and tendencies? Like you mentioned negativity bias, which is our tendency to laser in on the bad things instead of looking at the good thing. Is yes. there is anybody doing research on how many generations it takes? Because it strikes me that, again, we have so many single, not just women, but single men and women, lots of women choosing not to have children now, then a visibility, increased visibility for lesbian, gay, trans. So I'm curious how that is going to impact biology overall. And then- Exactly. Great question. Because so just the, the only bit of research, and I, I like to stick really close to the research that's done because I can hypothesize all kinds of things with you, but I want to give you the stuff that have already been researched. So we, we know that in the trauma world, and even in the animal research in traumas, that it usually takes three generations 
So it's the the, tra the traumas of your grandparents are still being felt by you in some way. And so there's that piece. So it, it takes a very long time and it's great. It's important to be cognizant of what traumas your grandparents went through because it really helps you understand what happened to your parents and therefore what happened to you. So self-knowledge is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, this thing about negativity bias, it's remember, that's a kind of a different thing in a way because that kind of falls into the complete survival realm. Right. Negativity bias means that your brain picks up negative things or dangerous things all the time. It's like there's Velcro. It's a big ball of Velcro ro rolls around in your brain, picking up all the negative things. So yes. it's to protect you. It's like really important to remember where you know, maybe that lion or that tiger was in the woods. Those of us alive today, we are the great granddaughters of our most effective and smartest female brain ancestors back there. So this negativity bias is something that kept us at surviving. So it will, it's, it's going to be there. That's not necessarily going away anytime soon. And then the other joke is that the brain has Teflon for positivity. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's why you have to reinforce the positivity, ladies. I mean, every day the positivity needs to be reinforced. You need to have some kind of practice in your life where you are decreasing the negativity by increasing your positivity. It's prayer for some people. It's meditation or mindfulness practice or whatever that's going to be for you. Just do it. I still fight it all the time. I still, I fight the negativity bias. I know I, I fight all the things that I talk about. I'm like, I'm in the trenches with all of you ladies. I, I wish I could tell you that it's magical cure, but there's not. The whole culture is built around what, fertility and controlling fertility. And right now our Supreme Court has done, gone crazy, but anyway, that's a whole nother. And that was also too, like the whole idea of being invisible is problematic for me because I to myself, why do you feel invisible? Is it because a a guy is not paying attention to you because I am busy looking mm -hmm. at older women like for who I can be and admiring them. So is it just that their receptors are not focused on the love where it's actually coming from and can come from? We women are built to be very competitive with other women. That's how that insula works. It's just how our brain works and it's just how nature works. Look, look, look in nature at, at female animals are all like competing for the best male. And think about how the mean girls things and hierarchies and like we do a whole different type of thing when we're in grade school and another girl has something that we want or she looks at, we remember those little events in our life and those are real. We push them away. If we've been doing that our whole fertility life and then all of a sudden we're supposed to like have women be our best friends. We're, we're asking ourselves to also flip all that, flip it. And I hope you ladies can help push that agenda to flip it to both older women being the wise women that are reaching back for their younger sisters, help show them the way and show them the love. And it's a, it's, there's a learning curve to that in your mind. And women like me, they were kind of mavericks and we were self-starters and you don't know that's how you were until you get to my age and then you look back mm -hmm. and you realize and that there weren't a lot of women mentors around. As a matter of fact, there are a few women that were like negative mentors in some ways and that we were, it was a different era. Even for you to claim the, that we're different, that's enough. Women are the same was the feminist agenda. Yes. Whereas this- still, It still is, by it's, the way. Yeah. It still is, but, but <laughs> that women are different and is the ultimate feminist agenda to me. And that women are better. I love that every human begins a female. Every human. So we are the prototype. We are the beginnings of things. And then the little bi chromosome comes along and changes things. We're the beginning. We're the beginning. We are the blueprint. And they are, it's like you know, Adam's rib and stuff. It's the reverse. Yes. Eve was not an afterthought. Adam was an afterthought. 
We talk about feminine leadership a lot on this podcast because I actually do believe when I did find the female brain, which is a long time after you wrote it, it confirmed for me things I'd been feeling but hadn't been able to articulate with a science perspective. So that was thrilling on so many levels. And I do believe and celebrate the fact that we are different. And I believe that women's differences, even though, yes, we're all human beings, so we have more similarities than differences, we are wired differently. And that is our divine advantage. Would you feel comfortable calling leadership feminine or not? How would you define leadership? I'm not an expert in leadership. I'm sure that a lot more about the, the research in leadership than I do, but just just from the kind of more biological and emotional wiring of the brain perspective that I come from, that the female is, we're biologically more wired for survival reasons to be able to read the nonverbal cues of a helpless infant and keep them alive for several years. We are the great granddaughters of those women who are able to do that best. So we have specialization skills in our brain from the get-go of being able to have those, they're, te- they're called the empathy circuits. We're able to like look at another person. We're able to look at maybe their facial expression. We can know when they're in pain very quickly. We know very quickly what another person is feeling. Now, it's not that men can't do that. And a lot of men are quite empathic, but they're just think that they're not evolutionally wired to do that in the quite the way we are. So our skill set in that area of reading, reading the room, reading the emotions, reading what another person's feeling, looking at a table full of people, say at a board meeting and like being able to read that group of people and know a bit about what's going on. So how you use that. I was a leader of my clinic that I started in 1993. So my, my leadership experience is small, but I can tell you what, what I learned. I was just going to bring it up. That's what was my segue <laughs> to the women's mood and hormone clinic. And it was at the university of California, San Francisco. It, it is renowned. The research that you did there is incredible. It was the only one in the country at the time. And I didn't even know that you have a passion, something you see a vision and you start it and you just do it. And they're all men at the time in the outpatient department in my department of psychiatry at UCSF, the outpatient department was only me as a woman and all guys. They left me alone. They basically left me alone because I was doing women's hormones and they didn't care, whatever. It was not their thing. So I realized that I was, the timing was right in some ways because I could just implement my vision in the middle of like a total male testosterone spill in my department, you know, this whole cycle of the year in an academic institution where every year I had to fight for its existence. And it was like, it almost had a crib death. It was almost, it was almost like never completely born, but I learned how to fight within a system for something I believed in. And my leadership skills were in the category of, I'm a kind of inspirational leader. I, I, I have my vision and then people follow me because they buy into my vision and they want to learn what I have to teach them. So it was more of a, that inspirational leadership. I, there's cer- certain leadership skills that I didn't have. I'm not a very good quote unquote administrator. I'm not in terms of the whole organizational stuff, but I had those people that were on my team that helped me with that, which was great. So I also was a very collaborative leader in that I, I really valued what other people brought to the table. And so those two things were the things I implemented the best I could and had it survive for 20 years. The things that, that I learned, and I, of course, used all of the 
circuitry in my female brain, kind of like reading the room, knowing what people were feeling, knowing when was the time, when was the time to just be quiet and not push something? When was the time to push something? And I had to do a lot of behind the scenes. All the decisions were often made in the as sidebars in my office with somebody before we went into a major meeting where a decision was going to be made. You know, all those things that you learn as a leader, but no one teaches you necessarily. You, I learned by the seat of my pants. So what's also should be mentioned here is that it wasn't until 93 that Congress brought into law the women and minorities as subjects in clinical research. So before this, there's no women. It's not even that it's something that you're in a room full of testosterone is alarming enough. But the fact that the research being done on any disease need not have included women at all. At all. At all. At all. And as you're noting that women of African descent tend toward fibroids, there's other things that they tend toward as well. I had cancer, my skin keloided because I have uh, Jamaican descent. It's also something that is common. So there are things that we don't know about women, about minorities, about different groups simply because the male establishment didn't think, and not everybody is, is terrible and, and misguided. Exactly. I was at Yale Medical School having the, someone was, but my professor gave this really interesting talk about this research protocol and whatever. And he said, this and this, and the, the males showed this, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't say anything about the females. I raised my hand. I said, what about the females? And he says, oh, oh, we don't use the females. Their menstrual cycle will just mess up the data. And I was shocked, but actually horrifyingly so. I was what, 24 years old or something like, and I thought like, oh, of course you wouldn't want to mess up your data. It, right. We believe them. We believe them. I had bought into the view too, which horrifies me now to look back on it, but it's more expensive to do research in the, both the male and female because you have to account for 51% of the population is female. And we don't even know what a lot of the things that, how diseases affect the female differently, or even the drugs affect females differently. And, and it, even though, like you said, in 93, 94, those laws came into effect, they had to be re-upped in 2016 because they weren't actually being implemented. They were being avoided. So only in 2016 did they make it a stronger law and re-up it into both animal studies and human studies because they were still just avoiding doing the basic science research on females because the cycles would mess up the data. Well, it would make it more complex for them. They'd have to be better scientists, wouldn't they? What a nightmare. It's also important to note, which you talk about in the book, there isn't a single society in the world that has a majority female leadership. If you break down leadership by percentage of women holding the highest political offices and executive positions and try to find a society that has pay parity over the life of a career in which women have equal access by most measures to education and capital for success, there isn't a single country that comes close to a 50-50 power share. But Absolutely. This is, this is appalling. Thank God for New Zealand and many countries following her lead. But women in the upgrade can turn this around. There is one in four women in the United States is over the age of 40. One in four. So this is doable. It's our time, ladies. This is our time. It is our time to seize power. What is your wish for every other woman? to seize her upgrade in its fullness, take it to heart and have more joy in your life in the second half. 
You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. Thank you.